Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1728, philosopher, theologian, and Anglican minister George Barclay wrote these verses. The muse, disgusted at an age and clime, barren of every glorious theme, in distant lands now waits a better time, producing subjects worthy fame. Not such as Europe breeds in her decay, such as she bred when fresh and young, when heavenly flame did animate her clay, by future poets shall be sung. Westward the course of empire takes its way, the first four acts already passed, a fifth shall close the drama with the day, time's noblest offspring is the last. As Michael Kimmage reminds us, his readers in his new book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, in the 1860s, Americans took this poem as a kind of prophecy, so much so that they memorialized it with a painting in the United States Capitol and named the new home of the University of California for the philosopher bishop. How that idea of the West became enshrined in American architecture, politics, as well as diplomacy, is Kimmage's story, as well as how it has fallen out of all those things. Michael Kimmage is ordinary professor and chair of the Department of History at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. From 2014 to 2016, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. Michael Kimmage, welcome to Historically Thinking. Delighted to be here. So, um, as I said, the, your book is subtitled The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, uh, but it's not merely about foreign policy. Um, it's about all those things that contribute to foreign policy. Um, I think John le Carre used to claim that uh, an intelligence agency reflects the culture uh, in which it inhabits and the nature of its government. And... Uh, certainly military historians believe that about armies and maybe navies. And foreign policy, in your telling, reflects all the cultural presuppositions of the country whose foreign policy it is. Is that is that fair? Yes. Uh, and, you know, you can say about that about politics uh, broadly construed, but foreign policy is a little bit uh, particular. It's, it's a very verbal form of politics. Uh, so in that yeah. sense, it has a pronounced cultural... Dimension and like domestic politics, it gets expressed as much through symbolism, narrative, story, as it does through hard and fast empirical policy making. And so that takes you to the world of culture as well. And then, additionally, with foreign policy, you have to explain yourself to other countries, and that's impossible to do without there being some cultural element there uh, on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. So we begin with uh, the question that I know um, everyone must ask you. Um, how to define the West. Uh, go on. It's an impossible job if you do it in a comprehensive way. It's impossible because it's an absolutely enormous concept which goes back to you know, sort of Greece and Persia uh, and notions of a West and an East uh, and antiquity. It can take you to the Byzantine Empire, uh, the breakup of the Roman Empire into Eastern and Western halves, and then the Age of Exploration, uh, also brings in new definitions of East and West, not to mention all of the definitions 
that you can find in the 20th century and authors, philosophers, art historians, politicians, diplomats, many, many different definitions of the West. So the first point to acknowledge is that it's slippery, difficult to define, uh, and a very, very fluid concept in part. I think that's what makes it useful uh, to people, but it makes it difficult for historians and uh, and scholars to wrap their head around. So I can leave it at that, and then I can define, if you wish, uh, the the West that I use in, in my book. But the first thing to say about it is that it's, it's, it's many, many things and many, many contradictory things. So I will quote, I will quote you to yourself. You say in the telling of this story, the abandonment of the West follows one particular definition of the West in American foreign policy. This is the West embedded in a Euro American narrative of self-government and Liberty, a history of Liberty, a project of building Liberty, a future oriented heritage of Liberty. The abandonment of the West documents this narrative as well as the conflicts and disagreements over Western liberty, over narratives that equate the West with liberty, and narratives that equate the West with racism and imperialism. So why isn't this the abandonment of liberalism? Well, there's another term that's uh, torturously complicated, especially in the American lexicon, because we don't define it the way that uh, Europe and much of the world defines the word liberalism. and I'm happy to sp- stick in this book with the notion of the West, which, after all, is ubiquitous in the sources. So you have, you know, Eisenhower on the West, you have Truman on the West, you have Ronald Reagan on the West, and and many many others who are really using this word and this term. And that's part of my agenda in this book is to try to understand what they mean uh, when they use this term. And to me, it's a slippery as it is. It's it's probably more tangible than um, huh. than than liberalism. Uh, huh. Liberalism is a Pandora's box, uh, as a word mm-hmm. in the in the study of American history. Yeah, um, let's be, let's start with an anecdote. You begin with an anecdote uh, dating uh, to the week after nine eleven, uh, and centering upon uh, crusade, uh, the word crusade, but really the concept of crusade. Can you relay that and then pick it apart uh, uh, to to reveal how you think of that um, episode and what it says to you about this concept of the West? Yes, the anecdote is is from right uh, right after September 11th, when George W. Bush was in Camp David and came back to Washington and met with some journalists on the White House lawn, and they asked him about his response to September 11th, and he mentioned uh, you know that a crusade is about to begin, uh, and immediately in the White House, uh, concern registered uh, that this was not the right word, and the day after or two days after he made this statement, he went to. Uh, a Muslim association in Washington, D.C., to, to formally apologize uh, for using the term. And I remember this at the time, and I was sort of fascinated by it, the importance that a single word can have uh, in politics. Uh, and I became increasingly fascinated when I saw that this word was really everywhere uh, prior to September 11th uh, in presidential speeches and uh, and rhetoric. And it was uh, a term that previous presidents, many of them, uh, had embraced. So you have Truman calling the First World War a crusade in Europe. You have Eisenhower who titles his memoirs uh, of the Second World War, Crusade in Europe, and that became a 16-part popular uh, television series about the the Second World War. Eisenhower then called the Cold War a crusade, as as many many people did. Uh, And it just intrigues me that you would have a word that isn't controversial uh, for quite a long time that it suddenly becomes or gradually becomes uh, controversial. I think that, uh, what George W. Bush recognized, or what his White House recognized, uh, is that a crusade is, uh, you know, it's a highly assertive term. 
uh, and it conjures up a lot of, of painful and difficult uh, history. And of course, if you're embarking on post-September 11th foreign policy uh, and you're trying to encourage, in the language of the Times, uh, moderate, moderate Muslims and to engage those communities, a term like crusade uh, is, uh, is certainly very unhelpful. But I wasn't getting into the policy issues when I talked about that. I was just interested in the cultural foundations and what this tells me, this story, uh, is that they had shifted at a certain point. And so I wanted to figure out what's the nature of that shift and what does it mean for, for our culture and for our foreign policy. Mm-hmm. At some time between Eisenhower and uh, George W. Bush, the ground had shifted. Correct. And that there, there was no longer a meaning that could be – the same meaning could no longer be attributed to crusade or the feeling provided by that word. Precisely, that there is a, a, a sort of anxiety or concern about it that simply wasn't, uh, that wasn't there for a good 30, 40 years, if not, uh, if not longer. Woodrow Wilson, let me add, is another detail that's buried – in the Washington National Cathedral, uh, in a tomb that has a crusader's sword on it. Uh, and it's even speculated that the design of Washington, D.C. is meant to resemble the crusaders. So it's, it's, it's a deep, uh, powerful motif in American history, uh, but one that's not constant uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you begin the book with a discussion of what you call the Colombian Republic, which is a very provocative uh, phrase. Did you come up with that uh, title, the, the, this, the idea of the Colombian Republic? <laughs> Maybe I did. Uh, yeah. you know, I'm not a, I haven't uh, looked to see if other people have used the phrase. I mean, let me uh, sort of first say um, that there are two chapters, the first and the final chapter of the book, that are meant to be very much in dialogue with one another. So chapter one is the Colombian Republic, and Chapter 6 is the post-Columbian Republic. So in, in my, my sense of the book and its argument, these are very much twinned concepts. Mm-hmm. So you begin with the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. Um, why? Well, this was really the apogee of the Colombian Republic, which I would define uh, in a couple of ways. First and foremost, the Colombian Republic was a republic infatuated with the figure of Christopher Columbus. And that fat- infatuation is just enormous. It ranges from naming of the capital city as Washington in the District of Columbia uh, to many universities and rivers and states and cities that are in one way or another named after uh, Columbus uh, and uh, you know the Chicago World's Fair, which I'll speak about in more detail in a moment, was meant to celebrate the 400th anniversary uh, of Columbus's arrival uh, in the Americas, it's 1893, so they got it a year, a year too late. That was a logistical issue, but that was the anniversary that was being celebrated. So, what the Colombian Republic came to mean by the late 19th century was a, a republic, an American republic that was forward-looking, experimental, uh, aged in technological uh, innovation uh, and advance, uh, but also on the move uh, and on the move in the way that. Uh, Columbus was on the move. We could go into the Christian uh, dimensions of this. It's very, very important to the Colombian Republic and to the figure of Columbus as the first uh, Christian in the American in the Americas, as it were. Uh, but that's not exactly the story I'm telling. But that's um, would be another part of this uh, story. But the Chicago World's Fair put this in uh, the starkest possible relief. It was a celebration both of what Columbus had achieved in the eyes of the fair's organizers, uh, and it put the United States on display. Globally, that this was a country that had the most advanced technology, that it had a booming uh, economy, uh, that it had lots of arts uh, and culture as well. This is what the fair was meant to, uh, to depict, depict and convey. And for Americans at the time, 1890s, 
there was no better to represent all of this uh, than Christopher Columbus. So hence the, the Colombian Republic. Yeah, reading that part was like pouring gasoline on my fire um, because, uh, as a matter, uh, you of course would not know this, but as an undergraduate in uh, in Baltimore, I had read written a paper on uh, monuments to Columbus in Baltimore, looking at how they had changed over the centuries. Uh, and in fact, as you note in the book, the very first uh, the, the first monument to Columbus, seventeen ninety two, is in Baltimore. Um, and interestingly enough, it's a, a very enlightenment monument, and it's a, it's. Uh, established, paid for by a couple of French emigre officers who had fought in the American Revolution. Um, and it's an Enlightenment obelisk. It's a sort of pre-Washington uh, monument um, obelisk. And by 1992, that the the 1992 Columbus Monument is next to Little Italy, um, by the between Little Italy and the Inner Harbor. I, I I think it's significant that in 1892 that people like my Great grandfather who had actually come to America from Genoa could say, "Hey, look, the first American was actually Italian. Uh, he was Genoese." There's a, a way in which that Columbus, that story of the West, as we'll see, allows people who are not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to claim some Americanness to themselves and to the entire American project. Yes, that's a it's a very important theme. A good bookend what you're describing with another Columbus. Statue put up in the 1950s in San Francisco, which is uh, right next to Coit Tower in San Francisco. And it's Columbus looking out kind of provocatively into the San Francisco Bay. So he sort of finally reached his destination, you could say. Uh, and that, too, was put up by uh, the Italian-American community of San Francisco. So there's yeah. pride for sure. Uh, there's sort of a new notion of the country's heritage. Uh, part of the work that Columbus does is sort of separate from Britain. He's sort of a cultural hero who's not... Uh, British, and that uh, often had particular meaning to the sort of non-British uh, immigrants, precisely. Yeah. Well, yeah. One of the first—I mean, one of the first ships of the Continental Navy is named the Columbus, which is kind of striking. Um, and I always wondered why. But you—I think it's your point—is—is—is is, is why he's—he's he's a non-British American, as it were, that they can that the Republic can immediately, <clears throat> excuse me, be um, attached to. Um, What's important for you also is the design of the White City of the Chicago's World Fair and Daniel Burnham's role in that and how that gets translated to Washington, D.C. Could you talk a little bit about that and why that's important? Of course, yeah. That's the real significance of the Colombian Republic for the larger argument of the book. Uh, the fair was taken down a year or two after it went up and the buildings were, many of them, not meant to be permanent. Uh, you know, it left the country with Cracker Jacks and Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, which were both, you know, the pioneer. Extraordinarily important. At the, at the fair, but the fair itself, uh, although it remained in the memory of the of the city of Chicago and of the world to a degree, it, it did fade away pretty quickly after it happened. Uh, its most important legacy is that uh, several of the architects uh, who were involved in design, des designing the Chicago World's Fair came up with a plan around 1900 for the city of Washington. Uh, and there you have, you know, a city that's very different from what we have today. The National Mall then was mostly train tracks. Uh, Pennsylvania Avenue was sort of a, a, a rundown, uh, dirty, unpleasant uh, street. Uh, and so these architects came up with a kind of fantasy, a dream of how the city could be redesigned. And very remarkably, around 1902, a senator from Michigan, McMillan, uh, started to champion their plan and then became known as the McMillan Plan. Uh, and it fundamentally reoriented the city of, of, of Washington. It created the National Mall as we know it, um, made space for lots of the museums 
that would come to define the city. The Lincoln Memorial is explicitly a part of the Macmillan plan. Uh, and then you mentioned Daniel Burnham, who decide, defines, uh, des designs the Union Station in Washington, completed in 1908. And all of this architecture is neoclassical. So it is, it was the case for the Chicago World's Fair uh, to begin with. So it's one of the most emphatic statements of connection between the idea of the American Republic and a neoclassical legacy. And imagine neoclassical legacy, uh, to be sure, but it reinforces, we really say forever, as long as it's the city of Washington, D.C., it reinforces this notion of the American Republic as a reimagined uh, neoclassical uh, experiments. And so to that degree, it's really extraordinarily significant. Uh, it's a chain of accidents that architects, architects uh, uh, gave them the chance to build their buildings, but uh, that accident has become a permanent fact. Uh, and one of the most iconic things really you could say about uh, America in general. Yeah. Now, it's not completely an accident. I mean, there is a, there is a foundation to build upon, as you say in the book. I mean, there's been Neo-Palladianism. Uh, there's been Greek revival. There's been a architectural passion for antiquity, um, you know, right up until the Victorian era, until the Neo-Gothic. And even that is a passion for a different kind of antiquity. Um, but uh, obviously, the, the capital had been built as a, as a neoclassical pantheon. Um, there'd been a very, uh, almost a political theology uh, it, behind the Capitol, uh, with this house on one side, the Senate on the other side, and then an empty space in the middle, uh, sort of at the center of the nation, uh, representing the people, um, with a sort of the dome of the heavens over top of it, the, that sort of pantheon space. I mean, this has all been explicitly done already, but Macmillan and Mead McKimmon White and all these people and, and Daniel Burnham, they, they are there to be able to spread out this meaning and, and, and extend it for much further than it had ever been able to go to before. You know, you're absolutely right. No, there's Monticello and there's the White House, both of which are, are, are Palladian uh, buildings uh, in design and very important private homes. The White House, it's a civic structure, of course. You're entirely right about the Capitol, which is spelled with an O to make us remember the Capitoline Hill uh, in Rome. And for quite a while, there was a Tiber Creek uh, in Washington. So again, to reinforce this, What's this link. Constitution uh, Avenue. And, yeah. and now Constitution Avenue. Uh, in, yeah. I think nothing does it quite as suggestively uh, as the National Mall. And then, of course, when you think that presidents, since Reagan, have been Reagan faced west, whereas previously presidents had faced east from the Capitol building, but he sort of looks out into the mall, uh, and now it would be unthinkable to have a presidential inauguration that wouldn't take place uh, on the mall. You have the March on Washington uh, in 1963, and then many other important events that uh, take place there. So it's, uh, architecturally speaking, it's the cradle of the nation, uh, and so it's enormously significant that it is created in a particular architectural style that's meant to send certain messages. Now, whether we receive those or not is another question, but those messages are, are woven in. Uh, oh, yeah. And there's so many like the uh, the Statue of Liberty on top of the Capitol facing east, um, defending the new world against the old, um, you know, uh, and the, the and greeting the rising of the sun. We started with the Barclay poem. Um, so she is greeting the rising of the sun as it, as it rises over the west. Um, and then you're right, Reagan's a very, um, it's a kind of a momentous iconographic decision to have the, the president face West towards the rest of the nation, uh, for the inauguration. It's a, it's a, it's a liturgical choice, really. 
yeah, no, I probably would have been outside the imagination of the people who uh, created the Macmillan plan. But, uh, you know, that's another interesting aspect of it, that the Macmillan plan also opens a certain amount of space and it gets filled in uh, mm-hmm. in ways which, uh, you know, we could return to when uh, we speak about the most recent addition to the mall, the Museum of African-American History and Culture, which is, uh, you know, a terrific museum in and of itself, but it's it's especially meaningful not just for what it is, but for where it is. Uh, and mm-hmm. It takes us back to the Macmillan plan. So throughout the uh, book, you go through certain paired uh, personalities. Um, that uh, Could you uh, list some of them? Because And some of them are uh, obscure. Others are very much not so. And yet some of them also are some, they, they might seem at first blush a curious choice to make. Like, for example, Malcolm X. Why is Malcolm X in this discussion of the abandonment of the West? Um, Walter Ross now, sure. Okay, we can see him. But uh, could you go Could you go through some of these paired personalities? Sure. Well, let me start with Malcolm X since you uh, yeah, I mentioned him first. Since you mentioned him first, of course, he's not a maker of American foreign policy. He was not somebody who occupied the halls of power in an official sense. Um, but when we spoke at the beginning of our conversation about definitions of the West, a key point to make um, is that it's always been contested. There's never been a moment in American life when there's been kind of easy agreement about the West. So even if I'm charting the abandonment of the West in the last couple of decades, it's always been uh, a much discussed, debated, and disagreed about topic. And so I think Malcolm X's voice is very, very significant uh, within that disagreement. It's significant for the constituencies, the audiences he reached in the 1950s and 1960s, but it's also significant for his thinking about America's place in the world. And for Malcolm X, um, the West was an agent of empire, uh, and it was an agent of, of slavery, that there was no way of understanding the West's power in the 19th and 20th century without understanding uh, the story of slavery. And so that's uh, a key point. Uh, and he also felt that uh, American foreign policy in the 40s and 50s was going off course uh, precisely because it was so Western uh, in orientation. And so he writes about this in the autobiography of Malcolm X. It's there in some of his speeches. Uh, and he is trying to reorient American foreign policy uh, and to liberate it uh, from white supremacy and from the legacy uh, of uh, of empire. Now, he's assassinated uh, in the mid-1960s, uh, and there's a lot of change and developments that he didn't live to see, but his voice is enormously significant in this uh, debate and is going to be rediscovered uh, after his death or continuously discovered after his death by generations of African-American intellectuals and uh, and others. I don't think it's ever been a voice that resonated in the state, but it matters a lot for the public, uh, the public conception of this concept and for those who really uh, are skeptical about it uh, and disagree with the idea that the U.S. should have uh, a West-oriented foreign policy. I, I would like to let's focus on Malcolm X at the last part of the autobiography is as I recall from from teach from being a student and then also teaching it there's that moment of when he goes on his first on his Hajj to Mecca where he feels part of a cosmopolitan world community um, but it happens to be Islam it's Islamic um, he feels that he is crossing a color barrier. Uh, in the way that W. B. Du Bois, uh, one of the first people that you speak about, 
he feels that he is crossing the color barrier when he engages in, in as it were, the great classical conversation with Plato and Aristotle, who do not know my color and what's the line? They shudder, shudder not. Um, they um, so there is in both Du Bois and Malcolm X. There's um, there's we see in Malcolm X, if I put this thought together, we see what Du Bois found in, in certain concepts of the West, what um, other people found in the concept of, of the West, actually a cosmopolitanism, a way of being integrated even though you were not part of a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, society uh, or, or the Anglo-Saxon culture, uh, which was also popular around 1900 um, as a way of, uh, as a means of thinking about the unity of the West, quote unquote. Well, it, it's a great pairing, Du Bois and Malcolm X. Uh, and I think that they also help to reveal how complicated this term is, uh, even among its critics, it's complicated among those who are its enthusiasts. It's, it's equally complicated among uh, the critics. Du Bois, who graduates from college uh, in the 1890s, uh, has a long career, uh, lives to a very uh, old age, uh, and that career has multiple chapters, and I think the contrast is really illuminating with Malcolm X. What uh, Du Bois is hoping for for the first couple of decades of the 20th century is something of a new West. Uh, indeed, he was very, very uh, enamored of, uh, of of the classics, which he taught as a, a university professor, and he studied in Europe uh, as a graduate student and was enamored of that experience. Uh, as well, and felt that he deserved access to the Western tradition as much as anybody uh, with white skin did. Uh, and there's this hope that there'll be a kind of reform or there'll be a change in American democracy that people will be able to see past the color line uh, and will start to construct a, a post-racial or post, uh, uh, a post-imperial future. Uh, and then you get the disappointment with that project that, uh, that Du Bois feels uh, in the 1940s and 50s as if it's impossible, it's going to Sort of continuously fail. The Cold War is a another story of that failure for Du Bois, and so he gravitates towards communism uh, in the later years of his life, and then eventually dies in exile uh, in uh, in Ghana. So you could speak of Du Bois as a kind of disappointed uh, lover of the West, in, in in some ways, I think with Malcolm X, it really is 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 different. I think that uh, at least after his conversion to Islam, the the hopes that he had for the West were never very. Uh, never very great. He's seeking a cosmopolitan, also cosmopolitanism, also in the in the last couple of years of his life. But it's not a Western cosmopolitanism. It'll be a cosmopolitanism that transcends uh, that mm -hmm. the West. Um, I think his skepticism about the United States in particular and Western culture in general was was something of a constant. So in that sense, they're working with the same problems, but they arrive at different conclusions. Mm -hmm. Let's go back uh, then in, in, from Malcolm X and uh, to back to uh, Woodrow Wilson of all people. Um, yes. Not exactly. Uh, that's not a dinner party that would really work, uh, Woodrow Wilson and Malcolm X. Um, no. Um, was Woodrow Wilson, you make uh, the best case for Woodrow Wilson that a Wilson skeptic like me could ever read. Um, I He has to be one of my least favorite presidents. Um, but g give that case for Woodrow Wilson as an advocate of, of the West and for um, the, the, the best part of the Western project. Well, it's a little bit complicated in Wilson's case because the term the West, uh, which comes into common currency in the last two decades of the 19th century uh, and really starts to take off in the 20th century. But the term the West is not something that uh, Woodrow Wilson was invested in. 
uh, or that you can find many references to in his speeches uh, and his uh, and his writings. So you have to infer if you're going to figure out this story of, of American foreign policy in the West, you have to infer a few things from Wilson. But he's absolutely crucial uh, to the narrative. He is the first um, sort of global foreign policy president that the United States has. So he's dealing with issues on a different plane from Teddy Roosevelt and McKinley and others who came uh, came before him. And of course, he's uh, among the victors. His country is among the victors in the First World War. And so he has a kind of power and clout that no previous American president uh, had enjoyed. So he's significant uh, in that sense. And of course, he's very significant for the vision uh, of American foreign policy that he uh, articulates. Let me back up just for a second, since we've mentioned Monticello and that Palladian architecture, the real progenitor of the West in American foreign policy is not Woodrow Wilson, it's Thomas Jefferson. So there's the one mm-hmm. who saw this sort of narrative of liberty. Uh, and he, who's of course, one of the first secretaries of state, as well as uh, an American president and the founder of the University of Virginia, uh, he's the one who articulates this narrative of liberty and sees the United States as a crucial agent within that narrative. So um, Wilson picks that up. He's, of course, an alumnus of the University of Virginia, is born in Virginia and was very much a Jefferson fan. He picks up that Jeffersonian uh, idea and he puts that idea, gives a kind of vocabulary and grammar uh, to that idea. Uh, And so it's uh, a sort of translation of domestic American politics into international affairs. Uh, And crucial to that is deliberation uh, and uh, and discussion, the moderation of pro- uh, of problems through deliberative bodies, much the way ideally American politics should be working here at home. That uh, Texas and Oklahoma don't go to war with each other when they have a disagreement about economics. It gets resolved through uh, Congress and through our deliberative uh, bodies, and that's what Wilson was trying to imagine uh, globally, internationally. And he comes up with these notions: League of Nations. Uh, and others that uh, uh, at the time uh, were inspiring to some Americans, uh, but that were also inspiring to some constituencies abroad in a very significant way. To make a final detail, I'm glad to talk further about Woodrow Wilson, but make a final detail in this uh, description of him, that there really is a reason, of course, why the train station in Prague in the Czech Republic is named after Woodrow Wilson. Uh, And it's that that he sort of set in motion. Many dark sides and uh, and tragedies in the political career of Woodrow Wilson as well. But that is the sort of opening salvo, you could say, uh, of a contemporary 20th century uh, West-oriented foreign policy. Uh, and there is Woodrow Wilson at the beginning of the story. But <laughs> he doesn't use the word West uh, all that much. But uh, this, this is a bit of a, a rabbit hole, but we are the diplomatic historian. And uh, I've always, and this is not my period, so I've always uh, wondered uh, when I hear people say, that things have been really different uh, if the United States had, if the Senate had ratified the League of Nations. Um, that, of course, I mean, FDR is always saying that. Uh, a lot of progressive historians have said that in the, in the immediate at, immediately after the war, too. Do you, do you think that's, that, does that even bear any kind of truth? Uh, you know, I'm sure things would have been different. I, I don't think that uh, the domestic conditions were there. I don't think it's just uh, a failure of sort of messaging on Wilson's part. I don't think that Americans wanted to play such a prominent role uh, in the world after the First World War. And I also don't think that the U.S. would have been able to do all that much in Europe in the 20s and 30s. Of course, it's a nice counterfactual to kind of engage in what if Britain and the U.S. and others had teamed up to 
to sort of knock yeah. on Nazi Germany before they went on the rampage. But uh, all of that seems uh, sort of hard to fathom. Uh, and when you're speaking of the Soviet Union and, and fascism and these sort of forces that rise up uh, and challenge the order, the international order of the 20s and 30s, you know, the League of Nations just wouldn't have uh, been strong enough to contend with that. So, you know, it's an interesting counterfactual, but... Uh, well, it, it's a counterfactual that was used a lot in, say, uh, in 1944, before the creation of the UN. Um it was a very popular political counterfactual. It just doesn't. It, I, I, that's what I, what you say is what I've always kind of you know seemed what I've idly speculated. Um, you also make a case that the 1920s were not as isolationist as we think, uh, which is an interesting point, at least, um, and not in terms of mentality uh, or American mentality. Could you yeah. explain that? Well, part of this comes from uh, the work of the historian Adam Tooze, uh, a brilliant economic and international affairs historian who very persuasive case about the U.S. as uh, an increasingly global power in the 1920s and 30s. And this, for two, has a lot to do with markets and the power of finance and uh, things that are happening in the American economy, uh, but also in terms of technology and transportation, sort of international links. Uh, the world is becoming more connected in the 1920s rather than uh, less, and probably by these standards also in the 1930s becoming more connected. So that's one part of it, uh, this is a period of American ascendancy, even if it's a period of relatively low ambition uh, in American foreign policy. Uh, but I really have something else in mind when I write about this uh, in the book, uh, and it's very important to the story of the West, that this is the period, the 1920s, when American universities adopt, many of them at least, adopt Western civilization uh, curricula. Now, it's very possible yes. to look back at this now from our vantage point and see how limited these curricula were uh, and that's true. Uh, I agree with many of the critiques that come forward about these curricula. But if you look at them historically, they were limited, but they were also uh, sort of expanding the perimeter of what Americans uh, knew uh, and what they had access to uh, intellectually. And so, uh, you know, curricula were opened up. It happened at Columbia first. Uh, and it's a very significant cultural and intellectual development. What Columbia did was lift the Greek and Latin requirement which had really been a huge constraint on American education in country, as, well as, a, uh, as well as an intellectual gift because to study at a university, you had to know these two languages and that uh, kept a lot of people outside of the university gates. So that requirement is lifted and what Columbia did to compensate, in part because alumni were angry about this change, is create Western Civ curricula that were books taught in translation uh, and there wasn't really a lot of scholarly apparatus that was brought to these books. The idea is that you can take bright 18, 19, 20-year-old students, put them in the presence of Dante and Homer and, uh, and others, uh, and by doing so, they'll sort of gain what an education truly is. This was the theory. But more importantly, they'll come to know who they are as Americans, which is actually kind of remarkable. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, these curricula were remarkably un-American. You mm -hmm. get um, you know, a little bit of American literature uh, here or there, but these were almost exclusively European curricula, and nevertheless, they were supposed to tell Americans who they were. You know, I'm not commenting on, on that in one way or another in terms of judging. I just find it absolutely extraordinary. It was an extraordinary curricular choice, uh, and it had for decades very deep consequences, not least uh, in American foreign policy. So Columbia, it's not that the, the program at Columbia was copied by every university because it wasn't. True. Um, it, but it nevertheless, those curricular reforms had 
immense implications for every other university. Could you go through that? Because this is obviously for a podcast called Historically Thinking, which is concerned partly about the teaching and learning of history. This is sort of very near our sweet spot. So um, talk a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, you know, sort of alumni of the program went out to other places, uh, right, significantly to the University of Chicago, which which still has this program uh, in place. And from the University of Chicago, you have a, a group that goes to uh, St. John's uh, College in Annapolis, and that too is a is a place that follows this kind of curriculum uh, in the present uh, in the present day. And then Stanford, I think, in the '30s, adopts a Western Civ uh, a Western Civ curriculum. Uh, you know, for the study of history, uh, it was something that put Europe uh, very much front and center, uh, which made a degree of sense uh, given the power politics of the time. These were the major uh, world powers, um, but was, uh, you know, an interesting narrative to, uh, to introduce to American students. But that's uh, sort of how it was. But I don't think that history was the key part of the Western civil curricula. It was really a humanity mm-hmm. curriculum. Uh, that was supposed to provide you with something of a vocabulary, sort of, you know, a bit of Augustine and a bit of Cervantes uh, and, uh, you know, not all that modern in orientation for the most part, you know, sort of ceases uh, by the 18th century, the Western Civ uh, curriculum. And that was the aspiration, at least, is that it would provide students a way of thinking about things, a common way of thinking about things. At Columbia, I don't know how true this was across the board, the Western Civ program begins around the time of the First World War. Uh, there's an awareness that this matters at a time of strife to sort of think in this way about the world. Uh, I think because it was wartime, there was a special emphasis that was placed on citizenship. So it was the assumption in the 20s and 30s for these Western Civ curricula that they kind of ground you as a citizen. Uh, they give you the education that you need to have uh, as a citizen. So I quote Lionel Trilling, who was both a graduate of this program at Columbia and then an instructor in it for, uh, for his entire professional life about the curricula that he studied at Columbia gave him a sense of, of what reason and virtue are as a citizen and how difficult they are to obtain. So that was sort of the leitmotif or the skeleton uh, of the program uh, in, its, in its political dimensions. You sort of learn about citizenship by taking in these books, these ideas, these, uh, these debates. Well, um, at Johns Hopkins in the 80s, uh, which was very much the anti-St. John's or St. John's the anti-Johns Hopkins, um, we didn't do that kind of great books stuff, except that we kind of did. Even at Johns Hopkins, we used the we used in history class what the professors referred to as history one, history two, history three, history four. That was Western Civ. And uh, we used the Kagan, Osmond, Frank Turner text, which came out in 79. And it wasn't called Western history or history of Europe. It was called the Western heritage. Um, and in the course of it, uh, we also had to read like once a week, we might read the second tree, Locke's second treatise in government. Uh, but then in, we might also read darkness at noon. And um, uh, we might also uh, read, oh gosh, now I'm blanking on the name of the, the Eric Maria remark the uh, novel about uh, World War One, So we were, had a kind of uh, Columbia Great Books light going on, even at Hopkins, as part of our history, uh, our Western Civ curriculum. And I know that there were, uh, given the sales of, of Kagan and Osmond's Western Heritage, there are hundreds of other schools around the country that also had a history class that was a sort of Western heritage. They're being taught about the West. 
Well, that's that's very true. Uh, and uh, many such curricula, if you had to generalize about it at the present moment, of course, it's a long time to go back to the 1920s, roughly a, <laughs> 100 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, but if you generalize about it at the present moment, it tends to be conservative and, 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 and religious universities that still have explicitly a Western Civ requirement or a, a sort of Western Civ program. Of course, the books, ideas, uh, and, and such that used to be taught under this rubric are, are still widely uh, available and sort of widely uh, disseminated. But to sort of say that an undergraduate education should be an education in the West, that tends to be the decision now uh, mm-hmm. conservative or of, of, of religious institutions. Uh, but that's, you know, a generalization to which there are a number of important exceptions. Yeah. So part of the story is, is William McNeil, um, uh, who I only discovered when I had to like um, get ready to teach survey classes. <laughs> it was like it was getting pro tips from you know, Ted Williams uh, to discover uh, McNeil's rise of the West. Uh, could you talk a little bit about William McNeil? And because in creating a book called The Rise of the West, he also created world history, which is a curious sort of uh, result. Yes. William McNeil unites many different things within my uh, within my argument, and I'll conclude when I sort of speak about him with a point about William McNeil uh, and Christopher Columbus, because he helps us to understand both the sort of last moments of the Colombian Republic, uh, and he helps us to understand the rise of the post-Columbian Republic. But William McNeil was a undergraduate at the University of Chicago in the 1930s, where he was immersed uh, in their Western civilization curriculum, and he just loved it. He thought it was exhilarating and exciting and opening new door new doors and new worlds to him and then he you know went off to fight in the second world war but came back and had a career at the university of chicago and in 1963 published this densely printed 800 page book the rise of the west uh which was uh, i think it was the national book award that it won uh in 1963 and was an academic blockbuster of that year and for many years uh, to come, as you mentioned, you know, sort of using it to, to ground yourself as a teacher. Oh. He wrote the book, uh, and that's a place that I occupied really for, um, you know, for a very long time. And the book is really something quite extraordinary. What struck me about it when I read it for, you know, to write this book is that it's not a Cold War argument. He doesn't write about the West and the East uh, in a Cold War nope. frame. Um, it is titled very provocatively, from our point of view, a history of the world community or of the human community. Uh, and so there's a conflation uh, of the West with humanity uh, that he himself came to regret, uh, on which on which more in a moment. Uh, but the book posits civilization, the story of the West, uh, as really two things. Uh, one, it's rooted in law uh, and certain liberties that law can confer. So this begins in the Greek city-state and carried forward into the story of Rome and then early modern Europe, and he does include the United States uh, in this story. And the other thing uh, for uh, McNeil about civilizations in general and Western civilization in particular is that it was magnetically attractive. And that was sort of McNeil's theory about civilization. They didn't just impose themselves on others. They did certainly do that. But great civilizations attract uh, adherents uh, and uh, uh, and advocates, uh, and that was the story of the Roman Empire for McNeil, but it was also the story of early modern Europe, and I think he was quite aware that uh, this was the role, in his eyes at least, that the United States was playing uh, in the 1950s when he was uh, when he was writing the book. So uh, 
you know, he'd made major efforts to understand the Muslim world and, and China. Uh, he was not provincial, and he really does strenuously try to avoid chauvinism. He himself pointed out in his memoirs that he was a Canadian uh, until he was a teenager, uh, and you know, sort of, uh, he found American exceptionalism off-putting uh, and distasteful. So there isn't a chest-thumping quality to the book, but um, it's Eurocentric by definition. So let me just conclude the point by saying a few words about William McNeil in the 1990s. So he was asked to serve on a commission that would commemorate uh, the Colombian anniversary, the 500th Colombian anniversary in 1992. Uh, and himself had uh, you know, some skeptical feelings about, uh, about Columbus, or at least Columbus as a hero, but he felt that he was a historical figure with good sides uh, and bad. And he documents in his memoirs how this committee that's formed in 1992 or for 1992 sort of falls apart and people just can't agree on what Columbus uh, means. Uh, and, you know, McNeil writes about that not uh, with outrage, I think you can understand what the critique of Columbus is, but he's sort of also a bit perplexed by it. So you see that he's a figure who's in between those two different uh, two different worlds, uh, uh, the world that, that celebrated the rise of the West and the world that was increasingly skeptical about the rise of the West. And uh, in that sense, he kind of unites uh, a lot of what I'm trying to write about. So, as I said at the beginning, um, you're also this. The title of the book is "The Abandonment of the West." Um, it's about how also people fell out of love with, with the concept, as it were. Um, and you make it. Uh, it's very interesting the ways in which this is not just a phenomenon on the left, uh, but also on the political right. So, could we talk a, a little bit about the unique juxtaposition of uh, Edward Said and Alan Bloom, or maybe Edward Said and James Burnham? Yes. Um... I like the framing of your question. It's uh, it's uh, uh, it's a key part of the book, in my opinion. And, and let me try to elaborate on it for for you and your listeners uh, at the moment. Let me start with the with the right, and then and then go to a few points on the left. Now, the standard way of telling this story uh, of the falling out of love with the West, as you imply, is by focusing on the left and multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. And that's not uh, wrong, I think, and I'll say a few words about that, but to my mind, that's incomplete. So what made the West thrive in American foreign policy in the 40s and 50s when it was the key concept uh, was that it was bipartisan uh, in, 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 in nature. So you have the transition very significantly from Truman to Eisenhower in 1952. Uh, and for Eisenhower, who, of course, was a military man, he wasn't a career uh, Republican, uh, it would maybe easier for him to do this, but there was no sense uh, of, uh, of sort of partisan diversions uh, on foreign policy. His foreign policy is different from Truman's, that's, that's true, um, but not on issues of commitment to NATO or uh, notions of, of Western liberty, as Truman and, and Eisenhower understood the term. There, really, you have something that's, uh, that's continuous. From FDR to, to Eisenhower, you could say, and then JFK comes to power January 1961, he's critical of Eisenhower in the campaign, but he too is sort of in the Eisenhower uh, mold. Uh, and broadly speaking, <laughs> broadly speaking, you can say that sort of center left and center right in the mm. 50s and early 60s were also sort of in agreement about American foreign policy being more or less on track and that it was you know part of the West or part of the rise of the West, as McNeil might have put it. Uh, all of this is sort of to the good that there's a basic consensus there. Now, you and I could pick apart whether that consensus is a good thing or a bad thing or like good decision-making or bad decision-making, but leave that aside for just a moment. 
uh, and you know, let's let that hang as a uh, established fact of American politics. What really changes after the 1960s is this loss of bipartisan support. So I'll speak about the left in a moment, but it's not just the left. Now it's complicated on the right because the West is almost always popular on the right. Uh, it's not uh, controversial. Most conservatives feel some affiliation with the West or with Western uh, civilization. But in the 1964 book by James Burnham, as you, uh, you know, mentioned the name, uh, he does something very interesting uh, with this notion of the West. He writes a book called The Suicide of the West. This is 1964, you know, a year after JFK gives his stirring speech on uh, you know, the powers of the West in West Berlin. Uh, but Burnham felt it was falling apart in 1964. And the problem for Burnham is really not the Soviet Union. The problem is American liberalism and American liberals who um, you know, have sort of gotten way off course and uh, are, you know, sort of half in the communist camp, sort of spiritually uh, and culturally. And they're the crux uh, of the problem. And I see in Burnham uh, really a beginning of a new kind of conservative argument in which the internal uh, divisions and conflicts are more attention getting, more palpable, more visceral really uh, than uh, sort of friend-foe distinctions uh, in, the international, uh, in the international sphere. And that seems like a remarkably significant uh, development, and it's also very important that it comes as early uh, as 1964. Mm-hmm. And it, it's there's a if I may there's a literature I think right up until the very moment the Berlin Wall falls that you finds on the right uh, in which the West is incapable because of something wrong at its heart Absolutely. it's incapable of dealing with totalitarianism uh, whether fasc- whether there had been fascism in the previous that was just a fluke or communism now I think Jean Francois Ravel. Um, uh, how democracies perish. Sure, I recall that from the eighties. I mean, there's a there's a numerous numerous uh, figures of the right, often former uh, men, men of the left. Um, Burnham, tr- former Trotskyite, Whitaker Chambers, uh, Ravel, Ramon Aron, a little, uh, to, I think, to a certain extent, all of them have a rather have a deep pessimism about what is at the what is the the Western project uh, being able to meet the challenges uh, that are in front of it. No, I think it's a great point, and it's a motivating uh, factor in Henry Kissinger's career, who writes his undergraduate thesis at Harvard in the 1940s on Spangler uh, and other figures. And Spangler is sort of the progenitor, at least the title of his book is the progenitor of this. The book itself I find incomprehensible and unreadable, but uh, the decline of the West as a a motif or as a a sort of narrative, possible narrative, um, once Spangler puts it forward, uh, it really captures the attention of many people. Uh, in the United States in the 1920s. Uh, and you're right, there's a long, long strain of conservative worry and conservative pessimism about moral decay, unraveling, fragmentation, uh, the dissolution of the West. And Whitaker Chambers' book, Witness, in which he does this, you know, with more rhetorical flair than Burnham did in 1964, Whitaker Chambers' book is published 1952. So you might think of that as a high watermark of, you know, West Cold War conflict, but Chambers sees it in somewhat different terms. Uh, and a lot of his worries are indeed uh, domestic. And I think you can take that forward to the present. It's certainly an argument of the Trump administration. What else does make America great again mean, if not that the greatness at risk of being lost? Although, you know, Trump's the West demands its own, you know, sort of direct consideration. But I think it's sort of of a piece in some ways with uh, the thinking that goes back to Burnham and to, and to Chambers. 
But there, there is always um, the question then, if it's so weak, why is it worth defending at all? That's, I think, the, that's, the, that's the unspoken corollary uh, uh, or the unspoken, that's the last chapter that never gets written, that maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's always rotten. Now, you get that with uh, some of the most Trumpkin um, uh, people uh, today. They'll say, no, it's not because it's not, you know, the, the far right will say it's not white enough. Uh, it's not Christian enough. It's too Jewish. Um, you could get that as an argument. Uh, but there's, but from people of a much more humane variety, like Whitaker Chambers, um, that's the sort of unspoken final chapter. Now, in a way, he becomes a Quaker. That's sort of his answer to it, which is a very okay. interesting one. He, a, a certain very um, extreme new community. It's a beloved community, and Martin Luther King sense, and that's that. There is that. It's the Quaker, the William Penn option rather than the Benedict option. Um, to, to be to be sure, no, I think that's. Uh, an excellent point. I just don't want to forget that the phrase that President Trump uses when he goes 2017 to Warsaw, I think it's his first speech that he gives in Europe as president, is is can the West survive? Uh, again, interrogative. Uh, uh, and you're, you're entirely right to identify that sort of question, that concern, uh, that anxiety is something that has a long historical architecture behind it. I don't, uh, if you will, want to forget about Edward Said. Uh, and the other, I don't, yes. And the other side of the story. So you have a loss of this bipartisan commitment on the right that comes, I think, for lack of a better word, from the culture wars and a sense of, of, uh, of increased polarization uh, that some conservatives uh, are engaged in. Uh, and, you know, I sort of trace Burnham forward to Pat Buchanan and Pat Buchanan to, uh, to President Trump. And that to me seems one, you know, sort of line of historical uh, connection or, or, or influence that you can... Uh, that you can piece together. Now, there's another line uh, which tells the story from the other side about why one might wish to abandon at least a certain kind of West or this sort of bipartisan liberty-oriented West that was prominent after the Second World War. Uh, and this runs through the career of somebody like Edward Said, who was a professor at, uh, at Columbia uh, and had an interesting life story, born in Mandate, Palestine, and then comes to the U.S. to study as a teenager uh, and Saeed writes what for the university world is by far the most important book on the topic. It's really his response. I'm not quite sure he saw it this way, but it's his response to William McNeil and William McNeil's optimism about the rise of the West. Uh, and Saeed writes this book, uh, Orientalism, which he publishes in the late 1970s. Uh, there he links uh, the notion of the West very directly to empire. So he's taking us back to some ar ar arguments that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois had pioneered uh, in the first half of the 20th century, uh, and he sees the culture of the West as deeply imperialist, uh, racist, hierarchical, uh, aggressive, um, overcome with hubris, and he applied this to America's foreign policy in the Middle East. But the key point really is that this is a story Du Bois tells about Britain, he tells it about France, but the latest installation of the story, the latest piece of the, of, of the puzzle is the United States. And so the United States, if it's to become a decent country for Saeed, has to get rid of this uh, Western infatuation. So for you to be assigned a book like Our Western Heritage, I can't quite remember the title of the one that you were yep, talking it. about, uh, is itself kind of a crime, according to Saeed. Uh, and it's the kind of crime that the humanities have to, first of all, reveal, uh, and then they have to correct by broadening the voices who are taught in the humanities by telling different narratives, by registering 
the crimes of Western empire, the crimes of the United States and put in these uh, sort of front and center. I wouldn't want to caricature Saeed's thinking. He's a nuanced uh, uh, and fascinating thinker. Uh, there's more complexity than I'm able to convey, but that's sort of it in a nutshell. But what matters really profoundly with Saeed, uh, in addition to the writing of his book, is the extraordinary influence it's had. It's probably mm-hmm. influential as the Western Civ curricula uh, that were created at Columbia uh, in 1919 uh, in 1920. It's transformed the way that humanities are taught, studied, uh, and approached. Uh, and if you would talk to almost any graduate student today and sort of outline the ideas of McNeil versus the ideas of Said, McNeil would seem like a dinosaur, a sort of scary dinosaur, uh, and Said would seem normal, uh, conventional, uh, commonplace. Uh, and so there too, you see, you know, Said is not a person of, of political influence in the United States uh, for the most part. He's never the foreign policies of the Democratic Party. That's another story. But to the degree that universities in the world of culture are important, uh, he's a commanding figure. And he's really, uh, you could almost put it this way, he sort of succeeded in his mission. Although he died a, a couple of years ago, his mission was was largely successful in the academic world. And what's, uh, we were talking before we began, uh, it, what's interesting to me about so many of these characters is the way this idea of the West is, is, is viscerally personal for them um, uh, in one way or the other. Uh, his uncle was Charles Habib Malik, who was the first Lebanese ambassador to the United, uh, to the United Nations, chair of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. He basically drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, and Malik was a student of Alfred North Whitehead at Harvard and Heidegger at Freiburg. Um, who, he was also a evangelical Protestant from Northern Lebanon and uh, quite an expert on Thomas Aquinas, I believe, who founded the Civilization Studies Program at the American University of Beirut, which is, I think, uh, more or less a imitation of the Columbia sequence. Remarkable. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is uh, Said's uncle, uh, who he uh, was a little, uh, uh, who was very important to him earlier in his life, and he became ambivalent about for obvious reasons. Um, this, is, this stuff is like in people's blood. Um, it's, uh, it's a argument that goes on at, if they had Thanksgiving dinner together, it would have gone on at Thanksgiving dinner. Well, no, I think that you point to what's really most important about this topic and it's, uh, exhilarating and it's painful and it's confusing, uh, and it's clarifying that this is, uh, a concept that matters because it says something about one's identity and one's place in the world. It's going to say it about an individual's place in the world, but it also, uh, helps to understand foreign policy as something that charts a course uh, uh, in the world and speaks to these questions of where we are and where we wish to be and where we'd like to go. Uh, and that in a country like the United States, I think in the end, this is really quite a good thing, uh, is vigorously, vigorously contested. Mm-hmm. A country where people come from all over the world. Uh, it's a country with a very important connection to Europe, but it's a country whose connection to Europe is inevitably uh, very controversial. So this takes us into race relations and the politics of ethnicity, how we cohere, uh, how we disagree uh, with one another. Uh, and that's really why I think it's one of the things that got me interested in the topic to begin with. A book like Alan Bloom's book or Samuel Hunting's, Huntington's book, Clash of Civilizations, Saeed's book, all these books are about the West. Uh, and these yeah. are books that really set people off uh, in, in, in different ways. So there's a lot of energy uh, and power to the term uh, and sort of who gets to define it uh, gets to define a great deal, not just in our cultural life, but uh, in our political and civic life. 
Well, let's start to pull this all together because um, we're way over time. So it, it, this, you seem to have suggested, uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but that the West was a useful concept in a, for American foreign policy. A am I right to, about that? Well, I do wrestle with this. It's, it's, it's hard. It would be easy to say that there's a lot of baggage, uh, which there is in the West, uh, that we live in global times. Uh, and so something like this is just too narrow a frame or a focus for, uh, for American foreign policy. I take those critiques seriously and don't have uh, an answer for, for all of them. But I would say this when it comes to the West, that uh, traditions are important. And this is really the American foreign policy for tradition from the time of Woodrow Wilson uh, uh, to well past uh, the end of the, uh, of the Cold War. So we should be aware of that first and foremost. We should be aware of what the tradition is. And then my effort would be, or my desire would be, take what's good from the tradition. And so I do think that this uh, ability to tell a story about liberty and self-government uh, and to tell that story to the American population, as the National Mall does, but also to tell it to the world, as a lot of presidents, from Woodrow Wilson to John F. Kennedy to Reagan, have been uh, good at doing. Uh, I think that that uh, is uh, a very worthwhile part uh, of, uh, of the tradition. It has lots of successes that you can, uh, that you can uh, discuss uh, and remember from the occupations of Germany and Japan uh, to you know, the best parts of American foreign policy in the late 1980s uh, and, and early 1990s. At the same time, uh, if you're to celebrate these successes and say that they offer a way forward in the future, you have to be acutely aware uh, of the failures. And so there's an intimate connection between the West and white supremacy. It's not an accident that Woodrow Wilson happens on this idea uh, and is at the same time a fairly ardent uh, practitioner and enthusiast of, of, of segregation. Uh, and there is also a complicated relationship between the West uh, and the story of decolonization. Uh, I say complicated because the U.S. during the Cold War fell on different parts of the spectrum and supported some decolonizing uh, countries and societies and got in the way uh, in, 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 in others. But the Vietnam War does in some ways for the U.S. continue the mistakes of imperial France in the 40s and 50s and earlier, and the U.S. perpetuates some of those because of its infatuation uh, with the West. We have to be equally aware of those things. Uh, we have to discriminate uh, and separate the good from the bad, but I wouldn't throw away uh, all of it. And finally, whatever American foreign policy is, we're not going to do it through technocratic terms, uh, international order, which became a cognate for the West and nobody really understood what it was and uh, had any kind of emotional relation to it, relationship to it, we're going to have to do it in a way that's culturally meaningful. So if not with the West, uh, then with something else. But tradition would tell us that uh, up until recently, the thing that did this uh, was the West. My guest today has been Michael Kimmage. He's author of The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for the great questions. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 